0: Chapter Seventeen of The Sleeper Awakes, Recording by Mark Nelson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Sleeper Awakes by H. G. Wells. Chapter Seventeen Three Days. Lincoln awaited Graham in an apartment beneath the flying stages. He seemed curious to learn all that had happened, pleased to hear of the extraordinary delight and interest which Graham took in flying. Graham was in a mood of enthusiasm. "'I must learn to fly!' he cried. "'I must master that. I pity all poor souls who have died without this opportunity. The sweet, swift air! It is the most wonderful experience in the world!' "'You will find our new times full of wonderful experiences,' said Lincoln. "'I do not know what you will care to do now. We have music that may seem novel—' "'For the present,' said Graham, "'flying holds me. Let me learn more of that. Your aeronaut was saying there is some trades-union objection to one's learning.' "'There is, I believe,' said Lincoln. "'But for you—' If you would like to occupy yourself with that, we can make you a sworn aeronaut to-morrow." Graham expressed his wishes vividly, and talked of his sensations for a while. "'And as for affairs,' he asked abruptly, "'how are things going on?' Lincoln waved affairs aside. "'Ostrog will tell you that to-morrow,' he said. "'Everything is settling down. The revolution accomplishes itself all over the world.' Friction is inevitable here and there, of course, but your rule is assured. You may rest secure with things in Ostrog's hands. "'Would it be possible for me to be made a sworn aeronaut, as you call it, forthwith, before I sleep?' said Graham, pacing. "'Then I could be at it the very first thing to-morrow again.' "'It would be possible,' said Lincoln, thoughtfully. "'Quite possible. Indeed, it shall be done.' he laughed. I came prepared to suggest amusements, but you have found one for yourself. I will telephone to the aeronautical offices from here, and we will return to your apartments in the wind-vane control. By the time you have dined, the aeronauts will be able to come. You don't think that after you have dined you might prefer—he paused. Yes, said Graham. We had prepared a show of dancers They have been brought from the Capri Theater. "'I hate ballets,' said Graham shortly. "'Always did. That other. That's not what I want to see. We had dancers in the old days. For the matter of that, they had them in ancient Egypt. But flying.' "'True,' said Lincoln. "'Though our dancers—' "'They can afford to wait,' said Graham. "'They can afford to wait.' I know, I'm not a Latin. There's questions I want to ask some expert uh, about your machinery. I'm keen, I want no distractions. You have the world to choose from, said Lincoln. Whatever you want is yours. Asano appeared, and under the escort of a strong guard, they returned through the city streets to Graham's apartments. Far larger crowds had assembled to witness his return than his departure had gathered and the shouts and cheering of these masses of people sometimes drowned Lincoln's answers to the endless questions Graham's aerial journey had suggested. At first, Graham had acknowledged the cheering and cries of the crowd by bows and gestures, but Lincoln warned him that such a recognition would be considered incorrect behavior. Graham, already a little wearied by rhythmic civilities, ignored his subjects for the remainder of his public progress. Directly, they arrived at his apartments. Asano departed in search of kinematographic renderings of machinery in motion, and Lincoln dispatched Graham's commands for models of machines and small machines to illustrate the various mechanical advances of the last two centuries. The little group of appliances for telegraphic communication attracted the master so strongly— that his delightfully prepared dinner, served by a number of charmingly dexterous girls, waited for a space. The habit of smoking had almost ceased from the face of the earth, but when he expressed a wish for that indulgence, inquiries were made, and some excellent cigars were discovered in Florida, and sent to him by pneumatic dispatch while the dinner was still in progress. Afterwards came the aeronauts and a feast of ingenious wonders in the hands of a latter-day engineer. For the time, at any rate, the neat dexterity of counting and numbering machines, building machines, spinning engines, patent doorways, explosive motors, grain and water elevators, slaughterhouse machines, and harvesting appliances, was more fascinating to Graham than any Bayadere we were savages was his refrain we were savages we were in the stone age compared with this and what else have you there came also practical psychologists with some very interesting developments in the art of hypnotism the names of milney bramwell fechner lebow william james myers and gurney he found for a value now that would have astonished their contemporaries. Several practical applications of psychology were now in general use. It had largely superseded drugs, antiseptics, and anesthetics in medicine, was employed by almost all who had any need of mental concentration. A real enlargement of human faculty seemed to have been effected in this direction. The feats of calculating boys— The wonders, as Graham had been wont to regard them, of mesmerizers, were now within the range of anyone who could afford the services of a skilled hypnotist. Long ago the old examination methods in education had been destroyed by these expedients. Instead of years of study, candidates had substituted a few weeks of trances, and during the trances expert coaches had simply to repeat all the points necessary for adequate answering, adding a suggestion of the post-hypnotic recollection of these points. In process mathematics particularly, this aid had been of singular service, and it was now invariably invoked by such players of chess and games of manual dexterity as were still to be found. In fact, all operations conducted under finite rules of a quasi-mechanical sort, that is, were now systematically relieved from the wanderings of imagination and emotion, and brought to an unexampled pitch of accuracy. Little children of the laboring classes, so soon as they were of sufficient age to be hypnotized, were thus converted into beautifully punctual and trustworthy machine-minders, and released forthwith from the long, long thoughts of youth. Aeronautical pupils, who gave way to giddiness, could be relieved from their imaginary terrors. In every street were hypnotists ready to print permanent memories upon the mind. If anyone desired to remember a name, a series of numbers, a song, or a speech, it could be done by this method. And, conversely, memories could be effaced, habits removed, and desires eradicated— a sort of psychic surgery was, in fact, in general use. Indignities, humbling experiences were thus forgotten. Widows would obliterate their previous husbands. Angry lovers released themselves from their slavery. To graft desires, however, was still impossible, and the facts of thought-transference were yet unsystematized. The psychologists illustrated their expositions with some astounding experiments in mnemonics made through the agency of a troop of pale-faced children in blue. Graham, like most of the people of his former time, distrusted the hypnotist, or he might then and there have eased his mind of many painful preoccupations but in spite of Lincoln's assurances, he held to the old theory that to be hypnotized was in some way the surrender of his personality, the abdication of his will. At the banquet of wonderful experiences that was beginning, he wanted very keenly to remain absolutely himself. The next day, and another day, and yet another day passed in such interests as these— Each day Graham spent many hours in the glorious entertainment of flying. On the third he soared across middle France, and within sight of the snow-clad Alps. These vigorous exercises gave him restful sleep. He recovered almost wholly from the spiritless anemia of his first awakening. And whenever he was not in the air and awake, Lincoln was assiduous in the cause of his amusement. All that was novel and curious in contemporary invention was brought to him, until, at last, his appetite for novelty was well-nigh glutted. One might fill a dozen inconsecutive volumes with the strange things they exhibited. Each afternoon he held his court for an hour or so. He found his interest in his contemporaries becoming personal and intimate. At first, he had been alert chiefly for unfamiliarity and peculiarity. Any foppishness in their dress, any discordance with his preconceptions of nobility in their status and manners had jarred upon him. And it was remarkable to him how soon that strangeness, and the faint hostility that arose from it, disappeared. How soon he came to appreciate the true perspective of his position, And see the old Victorian days, remote and quaint. He found himself particularly amused by the red haired daughter of the manager of the European piggeries. On the second day after dinner, he made the acquaintance of a latter day dancing girl and found her an astonishing artist. And after that, more hypnotic wonders. On the third day, Lincoln was moved to suggest that the master should repair to a pleasure city. But this Graham declined. Nor would he accept the services of hypnotists in his aeronautical experiments. The link of locality held him to London. He found a delight in topographical identifications that he would have missed abroad. Here, or a hundred feet below here, he could say, I used to eat my midday cutlets during my London University days. Under here was Waterloo and the tiresome hunt for confusing trains. Often have I stood waiting down there, bag in hand, and stared up into the sky above the forest of signals, little thinking I should walk some day a hundred yards in the air. And now, in that very sky that was once a grey smoke canopy, I circle in a monoplane." During those three days, Graham was so occupied with these distractions, that the vast political movements in progress outside his quarters had but a small share of his attention. Those about him told him little. Daily came Ostrog, the boss, his grand vizier, his mayor of the palace, to report in vague terms the steady establishment of his rule. A little trouble soon to be settled in this city, a slight disturbance in that, The song of the social revolt came to him no more. He never learned that it had been forbidden in the municipal limits, and all the great emotions of the crow's nest slumbered in his mind. But on the second and third of the three days he found himself, in spite of his interest in the daughter of the pig-manager, or it may be by reason of the thoughts her conversation suggested, remembering the girl Helen Watton who had spoken to him so oddly at the wind-vane-keeper's gathering. The impression she had made was a deep one, albeit the incessant surprise of novel circumstances had kept him from brooding upon it for a space. But now her memory was coming to its own. He wondered what she had meant by those broken, half-forgotten sentences, the picture of her eyes, and the earnest passion of her face became more vivid as his mechanical interests faded. Her slender beauty came compellingly between him and certain immediate temptations of ignoble passion. But he did not see her again until three full days were passed. End of Chapter 17